Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. There is no Mahatma Gandhi once said, Truth stands, even if there be no public support, it is self-sustained. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach, as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 1006th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. And we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcast podcasting, so here we are. We thank you all for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, website messages, Facebook, our chat board, and so forth. Let's get started. Jonathan, what's on the table today? This should be interesting. Well, Rick, our question is, has the gospel been corrupted? And this is a part one series. Our theme text is found in Matthew chapter 13, verse 25. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Okay, has the gospel been corrupted? So much of what Jesus taught was about the practical parts of living, learning to love, forgive, and encourage one another, and these are the parts of his teachings that seem to garner most of the attention. Jesus did, however, spend significant time imparting prophetic teaching as well. He had come to earth as a man to ransom the human race and in so doing to call out a people for his name. Much of his prophetic teaching was focused on how that calling would work and what that calling would face by way of challenges and pitfalls. Jesus was specific about what to expect regarding that calling and regarding Christianity in terms of corruption and deceit. It sounds odd to think about Jesus calling out some future failures of what would come to be thought of as the Christian world, but he did. So, how did he do it? What did he say? What did he mean? And really, what should we be paying attention to? So, Jonathan, there is a lot going on here with this. It's our objective with each subject we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant, practical way. We search out the context of the scriptures that we cite. We try to find their true meaning and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. Don't forget, simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and click Listen Live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world, and we may even include your comments on air. Okay, has the gospel been corrupted? We've got to really do a, a, a thorough job, Jonathan, of setting the table here to talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And to do that, you need a lot of context. So it's going to take us a few minutes to get, get there with the context. Now, the parable of the wheat and the tares is spoken in Matthew chapter 13 from t- verses 24 to 30. But let's go back to the beginning of Matthew 13 to begin to figure out what's happening. So let's do Matthew 13 verses 1 to 3. 
The day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, the large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. Okay, and this is, he's going to begin into this parable of the sower. But as he starts, it says, they went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. So there's some interesting points just about the logistics of what's going on here. So Jonathan, just, just walk us through a few of the logistical points of this 13th chapter of Matthew. Well, Rick, many commentators say this was Peter's house by the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. And that's kind of an interesting thing. I, we don't n normally think about that, but hey, you know, yeah, I'm having Jesus over today, and, you know, Jesus and the guys are coming over. And <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so perhaps it was at Peter's house by the Sea of Galilee, and they were near Capernaum. So that's kind of an interesting place to, to get a visual of what's going on here. What else? And here, Rick, it says, it appears that the seven parables spoken in Matthew 13 are all on the same day. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of teaching going on uh, it, throughout this day, and it's really interesting how Jesus unfolds it. Now, we're going to really be dealing with one parable, touching on three others a little bit here and there, but it's a very fascinating thing to think when Jesus talked in parables, a lot of times he would he'd speak a parable, then another one, then another one. So kind of an interesting thing, seven parables in Matthew 13, probably all on the same day. What else? And the last point, Rick, is Jesus will go on to uncharacteristically explain two of his parables to his disciples, and those are the sower and the wheat and the tares. Okay, so, and this is interesting because Jesus doesn't usually explain parables. In this chapter, he actually explains the parable of the sower. And Jonathan, that's the first one spoken in Matthew 13, right? That's right. That's verses 3 through 9. Right. And that's where the sower goes out and sows seed and it falls on different kinds of ground. Exactly. And only the last was the good ground. Right. Right. So it shows you kind of a, a personal experience there going, going through all of that. So you've got Jesus explains that parable. And then he will tell, speak the parable of the wheat and the tares, and he explains that one as well. That's really, really unusual. So let's, let's read through the parable of the wheat and the tares um, just to, to get our footing here. And, and again, Jonathan, this is one of those parables that's not a really, really, really short story. A lot of times parables are like two or three lines. This one's much more than that. Matthew, it really is, Rick. So Matthew 23, 24 to 30. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landover, landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. Okay, let, let, let's pause there because you've got the makings of one of those dramatic stories here unfolding. The, 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 uh, um, the man sowing this good seed is just going about his business. He wants to develop a good, healthy crop. And it, at night, after he has sown his seed, some enemy sneaks into his field and sows all of this bad grain amongst the good grain. Well, nobody. The goal, no. the goal is to ruin it. Right, right. Ruin his crop. So, in the parable, 
after things start growing, somebody finds out and dun, 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 we've got a problem. So it's kind of interesting. You know, you have a lot of drama, dramatic stories follow this same kind of a pattern. Something good is happening, somebody tries to mess it up, and now you've got the, the major conflict. So, you know, the, um, the man says to him, okay, an enemy has done this. And now let's continue reading the parable. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the master's response is, I'm going to let them grow together. I'm going to separate them out later. We'll deal with this. You know, so there's this, there's this strength in his, in his perspective. We'll deal with this. But it is truly a very difficult situation to have to deal with. That's the story. Now we're gonna we're gonna go through today's podcast and take apart most of this story. But Jonathan, remember there is a part two, and we're gonna be very um, methodical in working our way through part one because part two, if you don't have part one really understood, part two is gonna be like, where do you guys get off saying that stuff? So, <laughs> so we want to be careful and build up here with with part one. So that's the parable. That's our main focus for today's podcast. So now, Jonathan, let's just touch back on the first parable in Matthew 13, okay? The parable of the sower. Yeah, it has se- several similarities to this one, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, what, well, what, are, what are some of the similarities? Well, the seeds were sown, Yep. and uh, the field is the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, the seeds are um, interfered with. The grain matures, and both parables are explained. So there's a lot of similar things going on. Now, they're vastly different, but it's interesting that a lot of the the, the picture language that Jesus is using is, is very, very similar. And he uses this picture language, this similarity, because everybody in his day understood sowing seeds. Sure. That's... How they, they, you know, that you had you had uh, parables of fishers, of fishermen. You know, they they fished, they sowed seeds, they, you know, they 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 tended to their vineyards and so forth. Jesus told stories about the things that were utterly familiar to the people. So there's a great similarity uh, between that s- parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares. But there's huge, huge differences as well, and it's interesting that in Matthew, the wheat and the tares story is placed right after the parable of the sower is explained. Although, when you look at it, and, you know, this is just going to go off on a slight little tangent for a second, it doesn't, I don't think it was spoken right after that explanation. And the reason is that Jesus spoke these parables outside in front of the crowd. He explained these parables inside. And in both cases, it says, you know, he explained to his disciples. So I think that the, the parable of the wheat and the tares wasn't spoken after the explanation, but perhaps, and I don't know this for sure, this is a, a Rick guesstimate, you know, doing the best we can here. Um, perhaps Jesus told the parables, they came inside and they said, well, tell us the parable of the sower. And perhaps Jesus explained it. And maybe they talked about it. Okay, now can you tell us about the parable of the wheat and the tares? 
and perhaps that's the way it worked. I don't know, but it's just an interesting sidelight. Um, you got those. So there's, like we said, Jonathan, there's a lot of similarities, right? There are, but there's, there's differences. Okay. What, what's the key? There's a key difference in introduction here. What is it? Well, the sower was the only parable to omit the beginning phrase of the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay. Seven parables are spoken in Matthew chapter 13. Six of them begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, except for the very first parable, the parable of the sower. So why? Why is there a difference? How come that doesn't have that tag introduction that the other parables have? And I think the answer to that, Jonathan, is because we have to understand they're talking about different things. So we're going to, we don't usually do this, but we're going to give an answer before we give any proof, okay? Okay. (laughs) We're going to suggest that the parable of the sower, the one where the guy sows the seeds and some falls on, on on the path and on the stony ground and on the... The, the 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 other ground and then the good among ground the thorns, right right the there thorns. you go yep. we're gonna we're gonna suggest that that's a parable about people individual people and we're gonna suggest that all of these parables that begin with well the kingdom of heaven is like this or that are parables about a process not about people but about a process now you say well what process are you talking about well we're talking about the process of the kingdom of heaven. And you think, well, wait a minute. The kingdom of heaven, what's the process? I mean, you know, in heaven, heaven's good. Kingdom is good. It's all there. What do, what do you got to worry about? I mean, <laughs> you think about it. We, we, we often think of the kingdom of heaven, uh, or in, in, in Luke, in and we see that as a future perfect environment. And a really good um, description of that is in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. You know, when you think about the kingdom of heaven, you think about a scripture like that. And you say, okay, it will not be left to another people. It's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's big, it's powerful, and all of that. And, uh, you know, when God rules, that's the end of that. We like to think about the kingdom as a finished picture. But, folks, what we're going to suggest to you today is that the kingdom of heaven, when spoken of in parables, is not about a finished picture, but about the process of getting to the finished picture. And if you get that, then understanding what these parables say is going to make a whole lot more sense. Go ahead. So Rick, it really the process of the development of the church. Yes. Before the heavenly kingdom is there. Yeah, and, and we we need to do a whole lot of explaining on that. So okay. so you know, um, just let's remember Daniel 2:44 as a nice finished picture if you will. But that's not what we're saying that we're talking about. And again, the whole subject, has the gospel been corrupted? Well, the answer is yes, it has. How do we know? Because Jesus told us. How did he tell us? Through these parables. So when we understand the process, we can understand the corruption. 
That's what we need to get to so that it becomes clear in our own eyes. So, so as we wrap up this, this first segment, Jonathan, we need to consider that the kingdom of heaven has a future and a present not-so-good phase. Rick, for many, that's a new thought. If the kingdom of heaven is not future, not perfect, and not in heaven, then what is it? We've been studying scripture and discussing how biblical history collides with world history in today's culture for 20 years on radio and in podcast channels. If you're curious about how the Bible or Christianity applies to what you have faced and are facing right now in your life, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Listen live or on your own time, then reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. So, so, Jonathan, again, our perspective on this parable is that Jesus was prophesying about some serious future problems, future from his standpoint, regarding his followers that would happen generations after his sacrifice was complete. The mere fact of problems and enemies tells us that the kingdom of heaven can't be all clouds and harps. So now let's try and prove this through scripture and other teachings of Jesus. Because it's easy to say, well, it's about a process. Well, it's about the the, the context of the development of the true church. And, but how do you know that? And I think the answer is we know it because Jesus explains it that way, and we'll get to that right now. And Rick, it's very important to understand what that process really is. And going to ChristianQuestions.com and signing up for CQ Rewind, uh, the newsletter sign-up tab, just click on that and register for the outline. It'll go through it step-by-step step, so you'll really understand the thought process uh, that we're talking about here. Okay, so CQ Rewind, the uh, the full edition, sign up for it. It's a free service available at ChristianQuestions.com or through your Christian Questions app on your phone. So, Jonathan, let's get into trying to to understand this kingdom of heaven thing as being a process. Okay, we're, that's kind of a strange statement to make, but really I think it's it's very provable. And I think if we go to the explanation of this particular parable... It proves it, okay? Jesus' explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, he says the kingdom of heaven is a very tumultuous time. So we're going to drop down to the explanation, Matthew 13, way down in 38 and 39. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So now you've got all of these opposing characters in that description. But remember, the parable started with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like the enemy and Satan and angels and good people and bad and all of that. It's all mixed together. So you get the idea that the kingdom of heaven isn't all, all roses here. You know, you got definitely got the thorns going on. There's conflict here. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. It's easy, you see? You said it's so easy. Okay, so the first thing is Jesus himself says it's a tumultuous time. The second point is that Jesus and John the Baptist pointed to, quote, the kingdom as being with them way back then. Go back to words of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so he's saying, repent, and turn around, the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, what did he mean? Just going to one commentator, just a couple of lines, McGee, what does he say on this? The kingdom of heaven was at hand or was present in the person of the king. That was the only way in which it was present. And obviously, Rick, he's talking about Jesus. <laughs> right, right. So the, he, the John the Baptist was saying, okay, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and again, what has this got to do with the gospel being corrupted? Everything. Because if you understand what the kingdom of heaven is, and it is the development process of the true church, that's where the corruption happens. So that means what we're saying, Jonathan, just to jump way ahead, is corruption has been happening for thousands of years within the, the gospel church. Since Jesus' sacrifice, right. after Pentecost, it's be, it began from that point forward. It did. It did. And he's prophesying that. He's warning them about that. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, these are the words of Jesus after John is taken off the scene. It's interesting what he says right off the bat. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So now he, Jesus knows John is taken into custody. And it seems like the first words that he says are, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's saying to paraphrase, because I'm here, the kingdom of God is here. And by extension, if you follow me, you are part of the kingdom of God. And those are those that believe in the gospel. Right, right. But again, there is corruption in the belief system. Now, we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to be able to get into a lot of specifics on that today, but we're going to lay the groundwork for it uh, because it's really important to understand that if you know that something is destined to be corrupted, then you are also uh, forewarned and you can be forearmed so that you can be prepared against it. So a big part of this is saying, if Jesus is telling us, then we should be really focusing on, okay, how do I avoid that? How do I avoid the corruption, the false seed, and all those kinds of things? So again, we're establishing that the kingdom of heaven is this process of the church that grows up and jonathan it's not about a person it's about a process that's right because how long has this been going on now over two thousand years Rick. <laughs> okay so it's a long-term process so we've got jesus explaining that in 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 the parable of the wheat and the tares john the baptist and jesus both said the kingdom of, of heaven was at hand the third point is the kingdom is described as a present experience of those who are begotten by the spirit this is Romans 14, 16 to 18. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who is in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Okay, so now it's talking about the the kingdom of god is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy and that's talking about right now right that's right followers of christ living righteously and having peace and joy in their lives okay so now let's throw a monkey wrench in shall we i mean what's life without a few monkey wrenches right <laughs> in the lord's prayer 
What did Jesus say about the kingdom? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, now time out. Jesus is telling us to pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, implying that it's not there yet, right? That's right. And we're saying here that the kingdom of God is happening. He's right and he's right. How can they both be right? <laughs> and you say, okay, well, wait a minute. How can that possibly be? And I think that the answer to that, Jonathan, is to understand that the kingdom that Jesus taught us to pray for is the finished product of the kingdom where righteousness will, righteousness will reign. That was the Daniel 2.44 scripture from the last segment. The kingdom of God being at hand right here, right now, it has to do with the development of those who will be inaugurating that perfected uh, uh, pro process later on. Does, does that make sense? It does. It does. So the kingdom of God being at hand is just for those being developed. When Jesus says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, what he's saying is, after these are developed and are faithful even unto death, then pray for God's kingdom to come so it will rule over the entire earth. And that's where the Daniel 2.44 scripture comes back in because it says that kingdom will never be removed and it talks about being here. So it's two parts of the same thing. It's developing the governmental system in individuals now so it can be inaugurated later. Okay, hopefully that, that makes a little bit of sense here. Okay, ne next point. Point number four about the kingdom of heaven being now. All of the above scriptures that we just talked about in, in, in Matthew, in Mark, and so forth, uh, are describing God's own people under the guideline, guiding hand of their king, Jesus. Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, so Jesus is saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And remember, when in, in the commentary you just read a line from said that the, the kingdom was present in that Jesus was with them. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus is promising his presence with his people always, even to the end of the age. So you can still see the development of the kingdom because the king is there working with them. Now, throughout all of the gospel age, the age where the gospel has been preached, and you said it's been over 2,000 years, has the gospel, the true gospel, ever ruled in the earth? Not at all. Has it come close? No. <laughs> Not even remotely so. And no. you say again, what does that mean for the kingdom of God? Because it's in its development stage. You can't expect something that's developing to be able to do what it's supposed to do when it's finished. You don't expect the child to run before they've learned to walk. The kingdom of God is developing. So 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 10 is a great verse that explains this development process and the things that are to come from it. 1 Peter 2 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. So chosen race, royal priesthood, and we've talked about the scripture many times. If you're a royal priesthood, that means you have to be serving the people, right? That's correct. And Christianity is not yet serving the people. No. So all of that present development is for the future. So what we're saying is the context of the development of the true church is in a corrupted state. And that makes it even more difficult. That makes it even even harder. So, look, we see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven as being the context, like you said, in which the true church is developed. So now that we've got that down, we can approach the parable from a more of a clear position. Want to go to a soundbite, though, Jonathan? And this soundbite is pure sarcasm, okay? It's sarcasm. We want to make sure it's understood. This is from a, uh, a YouTube video called The Scary Truth About This New Age, New Age Modern Christianity. So the, the scene, if you will, in the video is a guy pulling up to a drive-up, you know, a, 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 like a drive-through for, uh, to get some food. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to the drive-through and he's telling the person, in, you know, inside what he wants, what he wants to eat. And it turns out it's what he wants to eat spiritually. So it's likening some of modern Christianity to going through a fast food drive-up. That's the sarcasm here. I want you to follow that so you can get the story. Welcome to First Trinity Unity Community Church of the United States. How can we feed you today? Who's teaching? Pastor Wilkes. No, I'm not so crazy about him. Oh, I, I meant uh, Pastor Johnson, of course. Sorry for the mix-up. That's more like it. Now look, I don't want any of that Old Testament business today. I want to focus on the New Testament. Well, of course, sir. The Old Testament God is me. I mean, he is a lot happier now, so let's focus on the present. Certainly. I want some creative illustrations. I want to laugh a little bit, but not too much. I want my communion crackers broken for me with 100% with 100% natural grape juice. I know that stuff last week was from Ken. You think that's honoring to God? No, sir. Of course not. I didn't think so. But I want to feel encouraged and uplifted and affirmed this week. And look, I want some healing for my bunion. And... I don't want to be challenged too much, just a little bit, okay? Because I'm challenged enough during work. Certainly. This is a safe place. A happy place. I'd be a lot happier if you had, if you had something in the fifth row or so. Certainly. Okay, so there you have the sarcasm that we were talking about. It's pretty plain. and But you know, Jonathan, in the sarcasm you can see seeds of the reality that we are looking at. And as we talk about Christianity and corruption. You know, some of the things he was saying, oh, I don't like that pastor. I want this guy. Okay. And, uh, and you know, I want to be challenged, but only a little bit. And forget the Old Testament stuff. You know, God's, God's mad in the Old Testament. I, we want new to And So, so he, he is, he's listing out what he wants from his Christianity. What's your reason? Well, uh, you, you, you look at that, and what do you think? I, I think how sad. <laughs> it, it's just unbelievable. Um, and and it's sad that Christianity in some ways has really become that. Yes. And see, that's the point. That's the point of the sarcasm is uh, Christianity really has become that in a lot of ways. We've created designer Christianity. And in so doing, we're, we're placating to the desires and the whims and the moods of the people. Now, I don't imagine Jesus ever doing that. 
he didn't go down to their level and stay there. He went down to their level to identify with them, and then he immediately showed them how to raise themselves up. And that's the thing about Jesus. So, so on the basis of that little sarcastic thing there, let's, let's now start with the, the parable, the wheat and the tares. And Jesus, um, we're going to read a verse from the parable, then we're going to go to his own explanation, because nobody explains it the way Jesus does. So let's, first, Jonathan, a verse, uh, Matthew 13, 24, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So Jesus, when he explains that later on in Matthew verses 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 37 and 38 says, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Okay, so he's talking about himself sowing the good seed, okay? Uh, the field is the world. The gospel was to be preached throughout the world. Okay, we'll get, get to a scripture on that later on. And uh, the, the, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. Want to caution us, though, as we go through this, to realize that when it says the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one, it's not talking about individual people. It's talking about classes of people. We need to understand that because it's about the process of the development of the kingdom. So there's two very distinct differences from the previous parable of the, uh, of the sower and the seed with the different kinds of ground. And again, this is going to show us people versus process. What are, the, what are the two differences? Well, Rick, the first is, in the sower, the seed was the word of God. And, and now the good seed represents the children of the kingdom. Okay. So there's the difference. Okay. And it's interesting, this, the seed was the, the word of God, and, and it was planted into a certain kind of soil. And that soil would, you know, gave us that, the individuality. Here it's children. It's plural. It's the children of the kingdom. It's the class of the children of the kingdom. What's the, the second major difference between the two parables? Well, Rick, the field or good soil was the heart of those who were called, but now the field is the world. Okay, so the field now is that seed is being sown out into the world, and that is where you're going to find the corruption. Because, you know, and the thing about corruption is, Jonathan, is it's pretty natural in a sinful world. Oh, for sure. It just, it just comes around, you know, corruption comes around because that's what it does. So, you know, when we look at this, 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 this seed is, um, so the, the good seed is sown in the world. Jesus is sowing the word of God in the world to the, to, or, or the, um, the sons of the kingdom rather is the good seed so that he's developing the governmental process of the kingdom to be, that's going to be on earth forever through individuals that are developed over a period of time and become this class that we typically call the church. So, with all of the players firmly in place, the drama is about to begin. That's right. It's time to bring it on. Next, the enemy will infiltrate with counterfeit seed. 
Why weren't they watching and ready for it? If you disagree with some of Rick and Jonathan's viewpoints, no matter your beliefs, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com or through our app by searching for Christian Questions in your app store. Our producers are feeding us your awesome comments and questions every week, so keep them coming. In this next CQ chapter, we're going 3D. Three viewpoints. Christian, secular, and neutral. You know, hindsight is always so much easier than living an experience. So for us to say that they should have been more careful will of necessity require us to ask the same question of ourselves. Further, God's plan at every stage has allowed sin to play a role as spoiler. And this allowance tells us that in this allowance, the testing of our fidelity is the testing of our fidelity to God's truth. We are being tested because we know that there is corruption. And right there, there's a huge test. And you can say, well, why weren't they ready for it? And what we should be saying is, am I ready for it? Really? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Yeah. How do I know if I'm ready for it? How do I know? So to get to that, you know, there's a lot of personal responsibility spoken of in this parable as we begin to unfold the corruption that is within Christianity. And I keep saying that. And, you know, it's one of the most heartbreaking things for me to talk about is to say corruption and Christianity in the same sentence. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't feel like it should belong, but Jesus himself told us that this would be the case. So we need to be uh, vigilant and we need to take on and understand it as best we can. So a little bit more on the Son of Man, Jesus, you know, the, the one who sowed the seed, sowing these good seeds in the world. And we had mentioned that we're going to talk about this scripture last segment. So here it is, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is showing us the sowing of the good seed by his commission, the great commission before he is raised up to heaven before his disciples. And he says, make disciples of all nations. You notice he doesn't say, make all nations into disciples. (laughs) You're right. He doesn't. Make disciples of all nations. And in so doing, you're going to be expanding the call of the church. And in that call, it's, you're going to find corruption, unfortunately. So let, let's get back now. Let's get back to this parable and, uh, and, and the corruption part. Matthew 13, 25, back to the parable of the wheat and the tares. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Okay, corruption begins. Corruption begins, it says, while his men were sleeping. So it seems like the seed, the good seed, was just sown, and it couldn't have been more than like a few days even, and at night his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went away. So even before you can see any plants, even before you know what's in the, I mean, you think you know what's in the field because you put the seed out there yourself. Sure. But something else happened. Corruption started right at the very beginning. Jesus' explanation of that is in Matthew 13, uh, part of 38 uh, and 39. And the tares are the sons of the evil one, 
and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Okay, so we've got two big things here. We've got to figure out what terrors are, and then we've got the devil. We've got the facing off between the Son of Man, Jesus, and the devil, and they're on opposite ends. But before we get to that battle, and it is a battle, let's just talk about tares. You know, this is always called the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jonathan, what are tares? Well, tares. Um, by tares, it's probably meant a degenerate kind of wheat or the darnel grass growing in Palestine. In its growth and form, it has a strong resemblance to genuine wheat, but it either produces no grain or that of a very inferior and hurtful kind. It was extremely difficult to separate it from the genuine wheat on account of its similarity while growing. So tares looked like wheat in their, in their early stages of growth. The two, yep. the two plants are very, very similar in look and probably in feel while they're growing up, while they're we're growing to maturity. Now, Rick, I just want to throw in when the wheat is ripe, it, all of those seeds are very heavy and they're right. bowing down, but the tares stand straight up and proud. <laughs> uh, the evil ones are straight and proud where the, the wheat class are humble and, and meek and bent over, and you can really see the difference then. Right. Right, and, and that, and we, we see in the parable, that's what the master says. He says, let them grow together, and at harvest, you'll be able to tell the difference. And again, Jonathan, that's why this is a parable of process, not people. Because already we, we, we've gone through 2,000 years of the age of the gospel being preached, and we've seen corruption come into the church, the true church, in all kinds of different ways. And, and in many, in, in, during many periods of history, almost snuff out the true church, actually. That's right. So, you know, you, and you can't tell until the harvest time. The harvest, just to jump ahead, is the end of the age, the end of the period of time of development. And so it can't be people because it's 2,000 years worth. Okay, and we're going to keep coming back to that because that's such an important point. So the good wheat are the children of the kingdom. And the bad wheat are the children of Satan. Not individual people, but the classes of the children of the kingdom and the class of those that are the children of Satan. And, and as we mentioned before, Jonathan, there's definitely a warfare here being described between Jesus and Satan. And it's a, it's a big deal. This is a big deal. We're going to take a few minutes and go, go into this, uh, to the warfare, because corruption comes because Satan planted it. That's why corruption comes to the true church. And you have to be careful what you believe in and what you cling to because it's too easy to find corruption. And that, that's, a, that's a disturbing thought, but that's what Jesus is telling us. We're going to go to a, a, um, a soundbite from uh, medieval, uh, medieval Realms, The Power of the Church, and drop in on some church history throughout the rest of the podcast. We're going to drop in uh, in the year 1223, uh, what you're going to hear is a quote from Visitations of the Bishop of Salisbury, again in 1223 AD, and it's talking about the context of the development, I think this was of the, the Church of England, but it just gives you a sense of what went on in church uh, events, if you will, in 1223 AD. But what made the Church in medieval England so powerful that it could challenge kings? 
St. Mary's Kilpeck in Herefordshire, a 12th century parish church. There was a church in almost every village in medieval England. So many survive today because most weren't built in wooden thatch, but in stone. It shows their importance. The church was the center of village life. Churches are used for dancing. And people come to church to drink ale. Yes, and the churchyards are used for fairs and markets. And uh, there's wrestling and summer sport and uh, much music. So when you heard that, those points at the end, and that was the, the quote from the visitations of uh, the Bishop of Salisbury, you think, wait a minute, was that the gospel that Jesus taught? <laughs> it sounded like a very social place. <laughs> well, it did, it did. And, and you know, what you heard, you know, there's wrestling and fairs and markets and all of these things. And yet, you know, when Jesus taught, he pulled the people away from those things and, and lifted them up higher. And you got to ask yourself, okay, well, well, what are we saying? Are we saying social activity is corrupt? No. But what's the place of Christianity in relationship to social activity? See, those are the questions we have to begin to ask ourselves here. If, if we're looking at church history, and we're going to be getting more into church history as we go through this, uh, this particular podcast, and part two, even more so. Uh, as we develop this parable of the wheat and the tares. So, Speaking of social, Rick, yes. social media used for good, receive daily inspiration and hope. Find us at CQ Bible Podcast on Facebook, CQ Bible Podcast on Instagram, CQ Bible Podcast on Twitter, and CQ Bible Podcast on YouTube. That's all one word, CQ Bible Podcast social media used for good. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot, a lot of uh, work that uh, is going into our social media presence. And again, our purpose for using social media is to bring the gospel without, without watering it down, without, without, without losing what the gospel is truly all about, a way to cope with your physical life in a spiritual way, in a godly way, in a footstep following of Jesus way. That's what we're trying to accomplish with social media. So, so Jonathan, this battle, the battle that's in place between Satan and God and, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and Satan and Jesus, you know, Satan's curse and the line in the sand all started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the battle between Jesus and Satan, right there. And it's talking about seeds. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Different kind of seed, but seeds nevertheless. <laughs> and it's talking about the seed of the woman. Jesus will ultimately deal the destructive blow to Satan. Satan will wound him, but not destroy him. So it's a prophecy right from the beginning of the battle. And it's interesting that that battle continued into Jesus' day, when he was dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his time, what had happened there was another corruption. They had taken the purity of the Jewish law and they'd built all kinds of other things upon it and they'd, they'd made themselves a higher class and, and Jesus called them out. And here again is that battle. This is in Jesus' day when Jesus is speaking directly to uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees in John 8. 41 to 42, and then verse 44. You are doing the deeds of your father. 
Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, Jonathan, again, as we talk about corruption within Christianity, one way to, to begin to understand it is to look at corruption within Judaism. Because what we find is that there are many parallels between the age of when Jesus came on the scene and was wrapping up the age of Jewish favor and to, to our time now in wrapping up the age of Christian favor and to, in, in, in favor of once the time of trouble is over, uh, the, the, the kingdom itself. So when we look at that, and you see that he's looking at the Pharisees and saying, you're serving the devil. That's a pretty strong statement. And they were the religious leaders of the world. They were the ones that everyone looked up to thinking right. that that's what godliness was. So think about the idea of corruption and the words of Jesus to the Pharisees. And let's start to ask ourselves, have we in our churches built some of the same kind of thinking that, 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 uh, that uh, difference in class, that sense of being above the earth, the, the worldliness of what the, the Pharisees were, were, were showing, you know, it was all about show, not about being real. Are we doing that too? Because if we are, would we be then falling into that same category of you're serving the devil, even though you're calling it Christianity? You got to ask those questions. Because Jesus said the church is going to be corrupted. And folks, look, this is not this is not a walk in the park, this podcast. All right. This is getting down to a really serious warning that Jesus is giving giving to us. So the battle, let's go back to the battle. The battle started right at the very beginning. And then it's in Jesus' day. And then it continues after the apostles. The sowing of tares came, remember in the in the parable it said, came while men slept. Listen to what, is, what happens in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. I think this is startling. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So the Apostle Paul himself is saying, I know, he's speaking emphatically, that after I depart, once I die, once I sleep in death, once men sleep, there will savage wolves will come in and try to destroy everything. In the parable, Jesus said, when men slept the corruption was, was sown. And I think, Jonathan, he's really focusing on the idea that once the apostles finished their course, it was ripe. Trouble. Trouble. Corruption coming in right to you, the, 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 the gospel. And you're not even one generation away from Jesus. 
And because you have those, those, those initial leaders off the scene, it's so much easier to corrupt things. And the further down in generations you go, the easier it is to corrupt. So there's a powerful phrase that, that, that the Apostle Paul uses in describing this whole corruptive process. So when we look at this, Satan has, through the history of God's plan, sought to subvert it. Remember the birth of Moses? Yes. And, and how, you know, Pharaoh tried to destroy all the, all the, the newborn boys. The, the, the infanthood of Jesus, same kind of thing happened. The three temptations of Jesus. Satan simply continues to try to destroy God's plan. And one of the great ways to destroy something that you don't like is to infiltrate its numbers and corrupt it from within. Jesus knew that would happen because he knows Satan's mind and heart, and he warned us that that would happen. That's what this parable is about. The warning that Christianity would become corrupt. And again, when I say that, am I saying all of Christianity throughout the whole world is corrupt no matter what? No. But what we're suggesting is that the corruption is rampant and real, it's divisive, and oftentimes we don't even recognize it because we're not looking for it. And we've got to stop that. We, we've, we've, got, we've got to open our eyes to, 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 to the reality of this because this is a serious, serious battle. I mean, the ferocity of this battle is extreme. We really need to focus on our part. We do, because evil is dark. Satan's role in this prophecy seems to be business as usual for him. What can we learn from this? Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. You know, there's a saying that goes something like, those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it. Our lessons here are powerful. We live at the end times. We have the advantage of 2,000 years of gospel age hindsight. These things add up to our ability to be utterly prepared for standing for good while evil seems to rule. The thing is, Jonathan, we have to be able to tell which is which. What is a corruption of the gospel and what isn't? Those are hard, hard things to tell for a lot of us. And so, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead and finish your thought. Well, you know, we, you, know, you, you had mentioned one of the things that you like to always go back to in terms of making sure that, you know, a, a way, to, a way to, to, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think it fits well here. A way to, how, how do you figure it out? What do you base your thinking on? Well, Rick, the, the belief of the ransom um, is something I cling to because it kind of weeds out error when you really understand Christ died once for all to be testified in due time. As an Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. A perfect price for fallen Adam and a perfect man from Jesus' standpoint. So if you truly understand that, then everything else falls away because it doesn't stand around it. So what you're saying is you take that core belief and you test all the rest of belief around the core. Exactly. Okay, and we're going to get into that more in this segment. So good, that's a good good place for us to start. You were going to say something else, though. 
I was. I was going to say, sign up for CQ Rewind at ChristianQuestions.com. Hit the newsletter sign up tab. Register for our CQ outline full of graphics and illustrations. It's our topical Bible study every podcast. All right. Free service. Got to try it out. It's great, great, great tool for, for uh, everyday use. Jonathan, let's get back to this uh, parable, uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, remember, the, um, the, the enemy came and sowed tares amongst the wheat in the darkness of night. Nobody knew what happened. Matthew 13, now continuing, verses 26 to 28. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Okay, so now you have this part of the parable where the discovery is made. Now, here's the thing. Jesus explains the parable of the wheat and the tares, you know, but he doesn't explain anything about these verses. He leaves them completely out of his explanation. Why is that? Well, you know, I think it's interesting to think about, and I think that there, there's no explanation because the conversation that takes place is not transferable to prophetic reality. In other words, from the standpoint of the development of the true church for the last 2,000 years, there wasn't going to be this conversation of, oh, everything is corrupt and you got to watch out for it. It was much more of an internal thing that went on through time. So it's not transferable in, in prophetic reality. Jesus does not assign a prophetic identity to the slaves of the landover, landowner who say, hey, something's wrong here. They're only in the story, I think, to explain the devious work of Satan to the person listening to the story. So, remember we said we have the 2020 advantage of hindsight. And if we see in the story that, aha, there were bad things sown and the master did know about it. So, you got to ask the question, okay, if he did know about it, what's he going to do? Well, that's coming up. All right, but he did know. And this, I think this is just given us to understand the context. So there's no, there's no interpretation here that belongs, because Jesus would have explained it if there was. So it's our heads up. Evil is and has been at work on Christianity, and we just need to be aware of it. Heads up, now you know. All right? Let's go to, uh, back to medieval realms, the power of the church. Go to another, drop in to another, uh, another church in, in England back in the year 1253 AD, and part of what you're going to hear is a quote from something called the Articles of Inquiry. Again, this is about church life in 1253 AD uh, in medieval England. But the church was more than a place where people could meet and be together. It taught how people should behave. It laid down rules, what was good, what was bad. And on Sundays and feast days and services across the country. Do not fall into sin. Be not proud, lazy, drunken. Do not keep a bad house. Come to church that the church can bless your children and make your marriage legal. Come to church to confess your sins. Come to church to celebrate the Christian faith respectfully and in the proper manner. So you have the church laying out these moral guidelines. And you say, okay, well, moral guidelines are good. But, you know, moral guidelines can be taken 
and, 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 and turned into hard, fast rules. And those hard, fast rules can be turned into things that if you step even the slightest bit to the right or the left, you're going to get hurt. And literally in those days, you got hurt. So you can take a good principle of saying, this is how you should live. And you can take it way too far. And, you know, come to church and make your marriage legal. So what are they saying? There's no marriage that ever happened among any, any man or woman in, in their days uh, outside of the church was legal? You know, that's, uh, that, you know there, there's no scriptural basis for that. <laughs> there's not. I know. So, you know, that gives you a sense of taking something good and pushing it too far so now you dominate. Wherever there is domination there is corruption. That's one of the ways we can tell if our brand of Christianity has been corrupted. Is there a domination? Is there, a, is there a, such a pressing down that there, there's no room to breathe or, or to, to express oneself? By the same token, whenever there is a free-for-all, there is corruption. <laughs> so <laughs> we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Somewhere in between lies the truth. So how do you figure it out? Let's take a few minutes and work on being prepared personally against any forms of pseudo-Christianity that we might come across. And this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We're going to take it in, in several pieces. So let's go uh, just, Jonathan, right now, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So test the spirits, test the powers, test the influences that are in your life. And, and I want to go back, Jonathan, to your previous comments, because you said that one way to, to test the spirits is to, is to take the basic fulcrum doctrine of Jesus dying as a ransom for all men. That right. is a scriptural teaching that is a scriptural teaching that is clear, it is concise, and if, if anything else doesn't line up with that, then you got to say, well, wait, what's it doing here? How is it that it belongs? So testing the spirits, testing the powers. See, the word for spirit, look, honestly and truly, the word for spirit is not talking about some kind of a, of, of a mystical entity. The word for spirit is talking about power and influence. It's the word that's used for wind, and when you think of wind, that's a, that's a power that can move things, literally, without being seen. God's Spirit is, is explained to us in that way. It's a power that can't be seen, but it can move and change things because it is, it is from God himself. So test the other influences that are around you. Any, any other thoughts on that before we go to verse 2? Uh, no, not right now. Okay, okay. Let's go to verses 2 and 3 of John chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Okay, so let's talk about that. It's talking about, there's several parts to this. First, let's talk about confessing. It says, to, you know, it says every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh uh, and has come from God. To confess something is to truly believe it, uh, to own it. Confessing, 
owning it, that Jesus is from God, is far more than lip service to a doctrine. It's a heart service to a life-changing core belief. And Rick, it also exposes the error that Jesus is God. He obviously isn't. He is God's son because this verse says, I come from God. So the idea of confessing, owning that, and, and there's much more in this uh, in Secret Rewind, the full edition and the bonus material about confessing because it's such a serious thing. We think when you confess something, you say it. And in a lot of Christian circles, you know, when you confess Jesus, you, you say that and then you say the sinner's prayer and everything is great. No, everything isn't great because you said words. It's much more than saying words. And Jonathan, that's another part of the corruption we have to be careful of. Christianity is not about saying words. It's about living in a way that, that, that you will follow Jesus with your every step. It's a very, very important aspect of this whole thing. Okay, verses 4 to 6 of John, 1 John chapter 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay, you know, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, we know the power and influence of truth, and we know the power and influence of error. We know where it comes from. And again, the whole point of the parable of the wheat and the tares is that Jesus sows the good seed of the gospel, and there is corruption sown alongside of it with Satan. It comes from Satan. And the point is, how do you figure out which is which? You have to know the spirit, the power and influence of truth, what it produces, versus the spirit and the power and influence of error and what it produces. So, because it's our responsibility to try the spirits against the truth of Scripture, and because of our deep personal confession of Jesus as coming from God to be a man, we can find firm footing. And again, you come back to that whole ransom thing. You know, the, the importance of the ransom as being the centerpiece of this whole experience. Go ahead. And Rick, this reminds me of a personal experience as a child uh, going to Sunday school and really loving the Bible stories and learning so much that God was love. And I really took it to heart because it said it over and over again. Then I go to the service, the church service, and I'm hearing something different from the, the pulpit uh, about um, hell and destruction and suffering. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If God is love, he wouldn't hurt anyone. Uh, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. But, but later on in life, when I felt the Lord was calling me and I learned how to study and look up Greek and Hebrew words and find out the original definitions, I learned what I believed as a kid was right. God is love because the word hell means covered over and buried in the grave. It doesn't mean torment and torture. And what a relief that was. But I had to search it to find the truth. So finding the truth sometimes means digging through a lot of corrupted things. And, yes. and that's really what this parable of the wheat and the tares is about. So let's go a little bit further with the discovery process, like you just explained in your own personal life. Preparedness in discerning spiritual influences will not protect us 
from sad realizations of the things around us. And, you know, Jonathan, just because you learned didn't make, didn't take any of the sadness away from the things that you saw. Correct. Philippians 3, 17 to 19 is a good verse that, that kind of puts that in perspective. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who sets their minds on earthly things. So this is a weird scripture, because look, the Apostle Paul is saying, many walk of whom I told you, and now tell you, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, but they're walking as Christians. And then he describes them, whose end is destruction, God is their appetite, glory is in their shame, minds are on earthly things. Now look, their glory is in their shame. That doesn't mean that they that uh, uh, they they take glory in shame. What it means is the things that they glory in inevitably are shameful. They may not see it that way. It doesn't mean that you know their God is that that what it says their God is their appetite. It doesn't mean that they put their appetite above everything else. But what it does mean is how they 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 go about their quote worship unquote is feeding their own appetite. When it says, you know, their, their, their end is destruction, it doesn't mean that they're saying, I can't wait to be destroyed. What it does mean is that the things they're doing are bringing them to destruction. There's a blindness, there, and that blindness can be uh, purposeful, or, we, or it can be literally wool pulled over your eyes. But there's a, there's a wrong direction. And a lot of Christianity, folks, has a wrong direction. And the apostle early on is warning us. Preparedness requires us always to remember who we are, what we stand for, and what protects us. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 through 8. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So really, this scripture is telling us there is no room or time for night and for darkness in our lives. No room, no time does not belong. You are not children of the night. You are children of the light. And the good seed sown in that, that Jesus had spoken about, it, that's what our battle is. We have to battle to be on the right side of this thing rather than the wrong side of this thing. So now, if we have been paying attention, we can be armed with the ability to discern. Now we really need to focus on godly goodness. We do, but let's get back to prophecy. What happens as a result of the devious actions of the enemy? Who wins this battle? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. You know, it would seem that the enemy wins for the mixing in of that which is counterfeit among that which is genuine always presents a challenge. Think of counterfeit money. 
A well-produced counterfeit will not be detected by the average person and will flow through society until it's discovered by a trained professional. And Jonathan, just to illustrate this, I actually have a trained professional with me right here, right now. Um, my wife, Trish. Hello, Trish. Hello. She is uh, works at a bank. So, Trish, oh, banking and counterfeit money, how do you tell money is counterfeit? Well, that is an interesting question, Rick. <laughs> um, as you asked me this, I was thinking um, the best and the first defense um, for detecting counterfeits is to know the real thing. We don't study counterfeit bills. We study the real bill inside and out so that when you see a counterfeit, when something comes up that's not real, you Doesn't notice match. it. Right. That's the first line of defense. Okay, what's next? Well, we have machines that um, detect counterfeits, um, but actually the best thing is just what it feels like. So you can tell by holding it? Yes, because when you're used to handling money on a, you know, over and over again, it has a certain touch. Mm -hmm. And when counterfeit bills are presented, they don't feel the same. You okay. can tell by the touch of the paper. All right, anything else? And how they look. I mean, some counterfeits are excellent really really hard to see but there's certain distinct features of a real bill that you are are trained to look at so that you can detect a counterfeit okay there you have it jonathan you heard from the the, the expert thank you trish awesome you know and so know the real thing know the real thing go to the things the the, the machine go to the things that that are are, are predictable and get a feel for it and, and then study, you know, because you've studied the right thing, something that's wrong. You look at it just like when you were a kid. It's like, wait, something's wrong with this whole picture here. Some, I, I, it's not fitting. Follow through with that and, tr and try it out. Test it. So that, that's a good, good, good illustration dealing with counterfeit money. Okay, let's get back to the parable. And, and folks, I'm going to tell you, we're not going to be able to finish the parable today. That's by design. Part two is coming up in a few weeks. We're going to end this parable, um, and we'll, I'll tell you what we're going to mix in in just a few minutes. We left off with Matthew 13, 28 to 30 from the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Okay, so the master, uh, you know, the, the remember that was not part of a prophetic interpretation. So... Here's what happens now. The master declares an appropriate course of action. What does he say? Verses 29 and 30. But he said, no. Right. Both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into the barn. Okay, you, you broke up there a little bit, Jonathan, at the beginning of the verse. And I, I don't know if you, you know what got through or not. But, you know, the first part that, that we couldn't hear is no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Okay, then he says, allow them to grow together. So that's the parable. Okay, now Jesus begins to explain that. In Matthew 13, verses 39 to 43, although we're just going to read 39 and 40 at this point. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Okay, so the enemy is the devil. 
harvest is the end of the age. This is really important because that's what we were describing earlier, and the reapers are angels. So the tares are gathered up and are going to be burned, so it shall be at the end of the age. Again, this is not about individual people. This is about the process of the development of the true church. And if the true church is developing in a context where there's a lot of corruption, we're going to call that the false church. So if you got the two of them kind of working and growing together and you can hardly tell the difference until the harvest time, then you've got a real problem. And at the harvest time, there's got to be a sifting out, a, a separation work that's going to happen. What is that all about? We're really going to get into a lot of that, a lot more in part two, because part two is going to be all about the harvest time. And Jonathan, in part two, we're going to introduce the other two short little parables. First, the parable of the mustard seed. Now, you remember that story, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. And that's in verses 31 and 32. Right. And that's a, a mustard seed that's planted and it grows into this great, great big bush. And, you know, it's huge. And the birds just make their nests in it. And you look at that and say, isn't that a pretty picture? Well, is it a pretty we'll picture? See. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll see. And then there's a the parable of the leaven. And that's in and verse... Go ahead. That's in verse 33, and leaven puffs up. It, the bread just blows right up. Yeah, and you say, well, that's pretty cool because you get those four measures of flour, you put the leaven in, and it just puffs right up. And you say, well, that's good. Well, is it? Based we'll see. On, and see, <laughs> and folks, here's the thing. You got to think about those parables now. Now that they're following the parable of the wheat and the tares, and they're following the story of corruption, you think Jesus is going to, keep explaining the corruption or is he going to completely change gears and say and they lived happily ever after he's not going to do that he's continuing to describe what the corruption looks like feels like and produces that's where we're really going to go in depth in part two so you really don't want to miss that because that gets down to all of the nitty-gritty we've been building the case to get to uh, part two with with all of the conversation up to this point okay so those are the the things coming up but you know it's interesting just going back backtrack a little bit when when the master says you know the, the servants say hey should we go gather up the the tares right now and he says no 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 don't do that why you might damage the wheat. I will not take a chance at damaging that which is good to get rid of that which is bad. Allow them to grow together. The wheat will be fine. They'll be fine. I'm taking care of them. The wheat will be fine. So he's, he's painting this 2,000-year picture in this planting and this growing process and saying the true church develops in the context of the false church. That's what the wheat and the tares is about. And he's saying, let it go. Let it be. And you think, well, why would God do that? Because that's, you know what? That's the way God works. In this age, he works, he allows sin to, 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 to do its thing. He just doesn't allow sin to completely overrun, especially those who are precious to him. So even though the true wheat, Jonathan, throughout the last 2,000 years has been subject to the corruption of the false church, 
they have maintained their integrity throughout. And that's the beauty of the story. Their hearts won't be injured. No, no. And we know that they are gathered into the barn at the end. We know that because that's what, how the parable ends. So that's an interesting point. And, and it shows you the drama of 2,000 years. And you, you think about it, because usually when you have a movie and there's drama, you know, it takes five minutes. <laughs> you know, it's a story and, it, and it's a day or it's an hour or it's a week or whatever it is. You know, but this is a 2,000 year drama that Jesus told us was going to happen. Let's go back to one last soundbite from uh, Medieval Realms, The Power of the Church. And now we're going to actually go back in time a little bit to the year 1070 AD. And this is a quote from a poem by, I don't know how to pronounce the name. I should have asked Jewel. Francio Villon, my mother, the, the poem is called. And, and this poem was actually written in 1460 AD. So there's, a, there's the description of the church in 1070, but this poem is being written, uh, is, is being uh, quoted. And Jonathan, it's a, it's a really sad and kind of gruesome poem. Just folks, just warning you as we listen to, and this is in the context of the church. I am a poor old woman who knows nothing. I never could read. But in my parish church, I see heaven painted with harps and lutes and hell where the damned are boiled. Uh, hell frightens me, but heaven brings joy. Heaven was God's home, a place of light and rest. It was here, according to the church, that people who'd followed the church's rules when alive were rewarded after death. Those that broke the rules were punished in hell. There is a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. There are devils that bind ye hand and foot, and tortures that last forever. My feet turned toad-like, for in life I'd stood in sin. My breast was eaten up with worms, my stomach devoured by snakes, for I had loved evil and rotten things more than I had loved God. My lips were cut off, my nose was cut off, my eyes hung down upon my cheeks. That's gruesome. I'm sorry, that's just it, gruesome. It is. And, you know, but the thing is, Jonathan, that captures the fear that people lived with in those days. They didn't call them the Dark Ages for nothing. The fear... It's easy to control people. I'm sorry, Jonathan, say that again because you were you're breaking up there. I apologize. Okay, I you're you seem to be uh, in an unstable spot there, so I'm gonna wait for you to yeah. come back. Hang on. Um so you know, and I think what you're saying is much easier to control people with fear rather than to con try to control them with goodness. And you're right. That's it's just that's the way it works, and that's the, the sadness, and that's part of the corruption folks look the bible doesn't teach that we've got several several podcasts we've done over the years about thoroughly thoroughly examining the 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 teaching of hell and hellfire and so forth and we'd urge you to check those out because corruption has been rampant and that's just one of many 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 things so let's get back to the the actual parable jonathan verse 30 of matthew 13 
All right, no, you're not coming through. You're not, you're not coming through. It says, allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers. So the, the master, again, let it happen. Just said, let it be. I'm going to let it go. Jesus' explanation is, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So you've got that, that difficulty happening there. And Jesus is explaining, look, this is all part of what I expect, what I know is going to happen. So the age of Jewish favor, because, you know, the age of Jewish favor ended with, with Jesus. That would be Jonathan ringing back in. Uh, the age of Jewish favor ended with Jesus, or began its ending, with Jesus casting off Israel. Jonathan, good to have you back. Uh, good to be back. Let's go to Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So that's the beginning of the ending of the time of Jewish favor. Jesus proclaims that they had the opportunity to keep the favor by simply following him. And it's not like he was mysterious about what he was there for. It's not like he didn't have anything to say or to show them to, to prove that he was from God. He was a, a healer. He was, had wisdom. He had the will of God in his hand. He knew the scriptures. He fulfilled the law. What more could you want? The religious leaders did not want him to, to change what they had in place. And that's what corruption is. When you have power and you got to hold that power, that shows corruption. And Jesus revealed that. So the beginning of the end of Jewish favor was Jesus casting off Jerusalem in Matthew 23. The continuance of the ending of Jewish favor came, came with the calling of Gentiles into Christianity. We're going to drop in on Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, and this is the Apostle Peter explaining the call to the Gentiles at the, at the conference uh, in Jerusalem. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just also as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. So the great thing about the simple explanation that the Apostle Peter gives here is that there is no distinction between a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian. Why? Because both, being true Christians, have been given God's Spirit. It's a simple thing. They're the same. And that furthers the casting away of Israel. They are cast further off because now the call to, to come to Christ doesn't just, isn't just limited to those of Jewish heritage. It is now expanded to anyone in the world who is willing to listen to that call, to obey and follow that call, and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And then the, 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 um, the ending of Jewish favor culminates. So it's a process. I guess that's the point. I should have said that right at the beginning. This is a process. Just like this the whole kingdom of God thing is a process. The ending of Jewish favor culminates with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the scattering of the people. And uh, again, Jesus warned about that in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. came up to point out the temple buildings to him. 
And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Okay, so in Matthew uh, 24, Jesus is giving us a sense of, you know, it's, it's not, it's not going to last. This is not going to last, and you just have to understand it. So Jesus gave us fair warning that, that the, the age of Jewish favor was ending. He gave us fair warning there would be corruption within Christianity. I, so, so it's not like we stand here and say, what happened? We should be standing here and saying, oh, I can track what happened based on what we're told scripturally. And folks, that's what really what, what we're trying to do here. And, you know, the, the age of Christianity and the gospel— is going to come to an end. And that's a part of what the parable of the wheat and the tares is about. It's going to come to an end when the call is complete and this world order is brought to an end. Just the way the Jewish order was brought to an end and the nation lost its national favor for a long period of time, so will this world's order come to an end. Remember what happened to the tares. They were, they were destroyed. Okay, and again, when we when we begin to wrap this up, we go to Daniel two forty four. It's kind of one of the scriptures we started with in terms of the kingdom of God. In those days, those kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. What does it mean? How does it happen? What about false Christianity? How do we tell who's who? All of this comes in part two when we look at the corruption of the Christian church through the ages up to today, through all of the things that have happened, both being too harsh and both being too lenient and walking away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what we should be holding on to. And next time, a few weeks from now, we'll be coming back to that. So for Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, has the gospel been corrupted? Oh yeah, seriously been corrupted. What can you do about it? Study to show yourself approved to God. Stay close to the fundamentals of Christianity. Until next week, think about it. Folks, remember, uh, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about Do I Have to Turn the Other Cheek? We look forward to talking to you next week.